We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Ace is a place with the helpful hardware, folks. At Ace, your backyard's right in our backyard, which means we have hand-picked products that are right for the birds in your neighborhood, like premium bird seed, suet, birdhouses, and feeders. Stop by your local Ace and get everything you need to attract the birds you want, including Ace Wild Bird Food, on sale now. Now through Tuesday only, when you buy two 20-pound bags of wild bird food, get a third bag free, only at Ace, the helpful place. Offer valid through February 28th at participating stores. Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Today, Bridget Griffin shared a video of her daily yoga routine, two self-help articles, and her new blog called Build Your Inner Bridge with Bridge. Girl, your sharing has turned into oversharing. No worries, Bridge. Geico has some info worth sharing with your seven blog followers, like how you could save money on your car insurance, update your policy, and report a claim just by visiting geico.com. How's that for building your inner bridge? Bridge, Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Welcome to the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast, brought to you as always by DraftKings.com. 
They're the leader in daily fantasy sports. Be sure to use the promo code ROTOWIRE when you deposit on DraftKings for a free entry today. It is Monday, September 14th. I'm Nick Whalen, joined as always on Mondays by Derek Van Riper. Still in the midst of week one, packed uh, a lot of action on Sunday. We had a game Thursday night, two games on Monday night um, as the NFL season begins. A lot to talk about on Sunday. We'll go through every game. We'll break down all the fantasy implications. We'll talk about the injuries, the big performances, the disappointments, just about everything. Before we do that, just a reminder that the podcast is now available for subscription on both iTunes and Stitcher. So if you're leaving, uh, excuse me, if you're listening on either of those platforms, please be sure to give us a nice review. Derek, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Great weekend. Uh, I coach high school soccer. Team had a tournament. We actually won the tournament. Got a little help from another team being out of available games. They had to leave. So they actually were going to go to the championship game. We were second in our pool. Uh, but we went to the championship game and won it. So I'm still happy about the final outcome about. there. Got some time outside. Got a little time with the family. Had a little fantasy factory this weekend. Had some of the uh, Surly Coffee Bender beer. I don't know if you've ever had that one. If you Is like- that like a... Like a porter type of beer? No, stout? it's actually, I think it's an ale, technically. So it's a, mm. it's a much lighter coffee beer. I, I do like the porters and the, the heavier beers, but this one is a little more like warm weather appropriate. So okay. good beer weekend, uh, good results overall on the pitch. And of course, week one, great week one. I got carried away, though. I was sitting there looking at DraftKings prior to kickoff. I was kind of by myself Sunday morning from, I don't know, about 830 Central until kickoff. And it seemed like every 20 or 30 minutes, I would find either... You know, DraftKings contest via email, or I'd be looking around on the site and I'd find some contest I wanted to join, or I'd build on their lineup and decide to submit that. It, it just felt like a DFS merry-go-round this week, where I got to the point where between season-long and DFS, I didn't know what I was rooting for. I, I knew there was a short list of players I didn't have in DraftKings or anywhere in season-long. Like there's a there's a there's a list of guys I just do not have anywhere. So I'm basically just rooting against those guys for now. And then as things develop here on Monday night with these two games, I'll probably have a few outcomes I'm rooting for in particular for my lineups that are in the best position to cash. Right. That's the thing about fantasy and, and like you said, DFS, survivor pools, pick em leagues. Once you get to the point where you have so many going on, like every single game means something, but you also find yourself almost contradicting yourself. Like I'm watching the, the Packers-Bears game, and I'm, I'm in a matchup against Alshon Jeffrey, but I have Aaron Rodgers, and I've, I have Jay Cutler in another league. So it's just like... Every play can almost hurt you and help you depending on, on who you're rooting for. I was wearing a LeBron James jersey yesterday watching with uh, some, some female friends of mine watching the, the Packers game, and they were under the impression that it was a Bears jersey, you know, basketball jersey. Interesting. Um, LeBron James, Cleveland Cavaliers jersey. Because I'm cheering, like, I mean, I'm a Packers fan, but I'm cheering like, against, the, excuse me, against the Packers for the most part, especially against James Jones because my opponent had him. So, you know, he, he scores that second touchdown, and I'm, I'm just up in arms and – and one of the girls like, oh, I get it now. You're a Bears fan. That's a Bears jersey. Like, how did she think no. it was a Bears? How does that happen? Where do these girls come from? <laughs> oh no, I don't know. They're from Wisconsin. I, yeah. So that was that was kind of the big turning point of of the the week one for me. And um, I guess I'm not going to make that mistake again. Of just going to be neutral. Maybe maybe throw on some Jags gear, or some Packers gear to, to eliminate any confusion there. Um, yeah, do you want to start with the, the Green Bay-Chicago game as we get into our breakdowns? Yeah, and this was one of those games where I was sort of fearing for my life as I was watching it because I was watching with my in-laws. Uh, I, I did pretty well, like in the in-law lottery, like well above average. I have great in-laws. They, they, they always have tons of food. They always are enthusiastic about watching the Packers. They've got season tickets. Uh, my father-in-law in particular, big guy, he um, was a plumber for like 30 years and worked outside in construction. Big, strong guy, too. And... 
I, I didn't have the heart to tell him that as the Packers-Bears game was happening that I had Martellus Bennett in pretty much all of my DraftKings lineups. So anytime Martellus Bennett did anything, I very quietly was just like, kind of fist pumping. You just wanted in, to avoid like a physical altercation in my head. with a very a, a larger yeah, man. I, I just didn't want to have the accidental outburst I would have if I were watching the game in the office or at, you know by myself. My, my wife's the same way. She's small but kind of fierce. Like If I cheer <laughs> for something, if, if I even acknowledge that another team makes a good play against the Packers, she gets pretty irate about that. Like She's mm-hmm. extremely loyal to the Packers where I can watch the game objectively and just say, oh, okay, that was a nice job. The left tackle ripped open a big hole. You know, Matt Forte looked shifty today. Whatever, any sort of compliment paid at all to their team can be bad. So Martellus Bennett gets the garbage time TD, and I don't think I reacted to it at all, even though in my mind I was just thrilled that he kind of salvaged what would have been a pretty bad game otherwise. Yeah, exactly, and that and that's kind of goes back to what I said. I mean, it can kind of fantasy can kind of make you root against the teams you like. It can make you root for players you don't like and root against players that you do like. And I guess that can be a little bit of a blessing and a curse depending on how you look at it. Oh, absolutely. So Packers in this one, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, brutally efficient, 18 of 23, 189, three touchdowns, no picks, no sacks. Bears defense, I think, still very much a work in progress. I mean, offensively, the Bears moved it pretty well on the ground. Matt Forte getting 5.9 yards per clip. I don't know how much of that is an improvement on the offensive line and how much of that is the Packers' run defense not being good. A lot of missed tackles in this game. We even saw Jay Cutler run for 31 yards on four attempts. Elshon Jeffrey looked okay, not great. Five receptions for 78 yards on a 11 targets. A lot of those targets. came late in the game, too. Yeah. Like, that like, final drive that was capped off with the Bennett touchdown. It seemed like, yeah, it was almost all those. I think maybe all those catches came in the second half. Maybe yeah. it had one in the first half. Uh, Devontae Adams sort of disappointed us a little bit. Four for 59 on eight targets. Not bad for the price he was at on DraftKings, but still, uh, for those who were expecting him to kind of step in and be Jordy Nelson, he got hoodwinked by James Jones. I mean, four catches, 51 yards, two TDs, and one called back as a result of a penalty. I think there were at least four or five red zone targets in total once you count the ones that were called back. So James Jones looks like he's a guy that Aaron Rodgers is very comfortable with in the red zone. The throws Aaron Rodgers was making in this game were flawless. The Bears defense didn't look completely inept. I think this is a really encouraging sign for Bears fans out there, given how bad that defense was a year ago. I think with John Fox and Adam Gase as the offensive coordinator, maybe Gase can get a little bit more out of Jay Cutler, but at times he was still the same old Jay. I think it was just that he avoided some of the devastating mistakes until the late interception to Clay Matthews. Right. The Matthews interception was kind of the turning point in this game. I mean, Chicago was, was right there for most of the game. You know, they were leading going into the second half, but I don't know if you, you never really felt like they had control of the game. I mean, the Green Bay offense kind of sputtered a little bit in the first half. Very conservative play calling. And like you said, Rodgers only 23 attempts. That's probably the lowest we'll see on the year, I would think. Um, the time of possession was relatively close in this one, but Chicago ran 18 more plays. And I think that kind of contributed to, you know, what you said, it's a little bit of a disappointing day for Devontae Adams. But I think if you prorate that around, you know, Rogers' usual attempts, you know, if, if he's in the low 30s, mid 30s, I think, you know, you, you're going to see Devontae Adams' targets increase. You're going to see his receptions increase. So I'm not really worried about that. And, you know, I think this isn't necessarily a fluke game from James Jones. And we've seen him. How many times has it been hashed over since he re-signed, you know, 2012, 14 touchdowns? You know, he's probably not going to do that again. But, I mean, he's pretty much transitioning into the same offense, same personnel, same quarterback. Obviously, the chemistry is there. So I don't think this comes as a huge surprise. You know, I mean, the fact that they signed him a week ago and he's already, um, you know, kind of back up to speed is a little bit of a surprise. But I don't think people can be too shocked considering – 
the continuity is still there from his last tenure. Yeah, you look at the overall target volume, I mean, four official targets caught all four, 51 yards, two TDs. Devontae Adams did lead the team with eight targets, four for 59, and then Randall Cobb targeted five times, caught all five targets for 38 yards and a score. Uh, there are some issues with how Randall Cobb can catch the ball right now. If you were listening to uh, Buck and Aikman, which I, I hope, hope for the sake of those who are watching this game throughout, maybe they listen to the local radio broadcast of choice, um, they, they did point out that Randall Cobb really can't move his arms up quite the same way. He still has pretty good range of motion, but Rodgers is trying not to throw passes above his head for the sake of limiting how exposed he is to getting hit up high. Um, so we'll see if that really impacts him beyond this week. It seemed like he was about 75 80% healthy watching him. Didn't get quite the same volume you'd expect, but again, could be the function of the Packers not running that many plays and Rodgers only getting to attempt 23 passes. Yeah, I thought there were a lot of tough catches made by the Green Bay receivers. I think there, there usually are. I mean, Rodgers obviously gets a lot of credit for being as accurate as he is, but I think what's not talked about as much is just the throwing windows that he's that he's going into. I mean, the, J- the James Jones touchdowns were both pretty difficult catches. The Cobb touchdown was an ideal throw by Rodgers and still a very nice catch by Randall Cobb. And and even Devonta Adams had a couple right near the sideline and you know just a lot of focus on foot placement, knee placement, and. I mean, the Green Bay receivers are as good as that at, at that as any core in the league. It's just got to be so difficult to defend Aaron Rodgers because he could make throws that only a handful of players in the league are even capable of making, and it seems like he makes them more consistently than anybody. But this game, I mean, even though it finished 31-23, never really felt like the Packers were out of control, even though the, the Bears hung around and maybe exceeded expectations for some people out there. An encouraging first game for them, I think, even with the home loss. How about the uh, the expansion battle from the 90s, though? Your Jags falling to Carolina 20-9. to It was an ugly game. I mean, it was. This one ran while the Green Bay game was on. I didn't have the red zone IV hooked up for this week. I mean, again, watching that Packer game start to finish, missed out on a lot of the early games, saw a ton of highlights and read about them, of course. But, you know, Blake Bortles looked like a different guy in the preseason. What happened yesterday? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the amount of highlights. Not many of them came from this game. Like you said, probably the ugliest game on a Sunday when there were a couple other ugly games. Washington-Miami comes to mind as one of those. But and this one, this one pretty much as expected. I think two struggling offenses, two pretty decent defenses. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was more of the incompetence on the offensive end. Uh, Cam Newton wasn't great for Carolina. Blake Bortles was even worse for Jacksonville. Um, you know, like you said, he was so good in the preseason, and I think a lot, of, especially that third preseason game, he came out and and you know was hitting everything. They were driving up and down the field. People thought, um, you know, all the work he put in this off season was was finally going to play dividends, and that was not the case. I mean, this was the exact same Blake Bortles as last season: twenty-two of forty, uh, only one hundred eighty-three yards. So that's right around eight yards per attempt. Just a lot of checkdowns. Um, you know, when he is looking downfield, I, I thought he was kind of telegraphing his passes a little too much. It was just. This is not a pretty game, and I, I had this one going on the on the second TV. Was was paying more attention to Green Bay, but still tried to keep an eye on this one. And it, they just look like the same team to me. I think they they got away from the run a little bit in the second half. T.J. Yeldon, I think, was right around forty yards at halftime. Finished with only fifty-one on twelve carries, only five carries for Denard Robinson. Um, this was this was just not what I expected. I guess um, I wasn't necessarily expecting a win, but the the Jaguars looked as incompetent as they had at any time last year offensively. Um, and, and this is a very winnable game for them. And it would have been it would have been a step in the right direction. And I don't think you can really come out of here with too many positives. One of them, rookie Rashad Green, did have a touchdown, targeted 13 times. That was by far the most of any receiver on either team. He ended up leaving the leaving the game with a concussion in the fourth quarter. Got hit pretty hard from behind. 
um, on a little pass on the flat. But encouraging game from him, um, a guy who's filling in for Marquise Lee in the slot. So if he, if he ends up being all right with that concussion and Lee misses more time, maybe worth a, a flyer in deeper leagues. Pretty disappointed by Greg Olson in this one. One yeah. catch for 11 yards on three targets. Allen Robinson, one catch for 27 yards on six targets. This game was awful, top to bottom, as far as the actual performances go. Jonathan Stewart, only 18 carries for 56 yards. Did add 25 yards as a receiver on four catches. So in a full-point PPR league, he was passable. Otherwise, he wasn't very good in a matchup that should have been even better. Allen Hearns led the way for the Jags, 5 for 60 on seven targets. I mean, I, I do like him as a downfield threat, and at least until Marquise Lee comes back, I think he's startable in your really deep leagues, like 16-team leagues where you start three. But, man, uh, not a very inspiring performance, to say the least, now from the, this group the Blake overall. Bortles pick six, uh, I think, is what really did them in here. I think that's that kind of sucked the life out of them at home, at, at the bank, in week one. So Carolina comes out on top in the latest edition of the Big Cat Bowl. So the, the biggest surprise for me from the early slate of games, the Chiefs going on the road to Houston, winning 27-20 putting up points early in this one too. Uh, Brian Hoyer loses out on the on the job to Brian Mallett in game. We'll see what happens here leading into week 2. Kind of a strange hook there given the way Mallett was he didn't seem like he really had lost the job in the preseason and yet they gave it to Hoyer anyway. I don't know if that's because they wanted some continuity at the end of the preseason. They wanted the, the players and the team to know who the actual starting quarterback was going to be, but I, I didn't really understand why the quick hook happened. Mallett was decent, 8 of 13, 98 yards and a touchdown, and at least DeAndre Hopkins was really good in this one. It seemed like a guy that we really didn't talk about as a daily consideration because you could pretty easily afford a combination of the elite receivers by using like Tyrod Taylor at 5,000 as your quarterback. So those who had DeAndre Hopkins really think reap benefits here. Nine catches, 98 yards, two touchdowns. Nate Washington was such, was such a Nate Washington first game. That's what I thought Cecil Shorts might do. Six for 105. I mean, if you try to pick up Nate Washington and use him next week, you're going to get like three for 31. So buyer, if that, I think that would be a that would be a huge bonus if you get three for 31 next week. Yeah, just buyer beware there because he's done this before and he's just so unreliable. Travis Kelsey looks like Casey's version of Gronk. I think his stock is up a little bit after this opener. Six catches, 106 yards, two TDs. Uh, still no receiving touchdowns for a Chiefs receiver, but I think Jeremy Macklin is going to get there. Nice debut overall from him. J.J. Watt played really well in this one, but the rest of the defense was a huge letdown. I, if you would have said the Chiefs were going to score 27 points against the Texans week one, I would have assumed one special teams touchdown and probably a defensive touchdown, too, to get there. Right. You mentioned J.J. Watt played really well. Six tackles for loss for him, a couple sacks. Led the NFL with 29 tackles for loss all of last season. He's already at six through week one. So, I wouldn't. I would be. Uh, I would be surprised if he doesn't turn in another you know, ridiculous season here. You mentioned the Brian Hoyer hook was a little bit odd. Eighteen of thirty-four, two hundred thirty-six yards, one touchdown, one pick. Did lose a fumble, um, so maybe ball security uh, is, is a bigger concern there. But you, I mean, not the kind of numbers when you see a mid-game hook in I mean, what was a fairly close game. Um, yeah, I didn't think Hoyer played badly enough to really deserve that. I do think, though, of the two, Mallet offers more upside as the yes. younger player, someone who really hasn't had an opportunity. I think we, we see him as less of a known quantity. I, I kind of wish the Texans would have just gone with Mallet to begin with, just to see how things played out. And then if at week three or week four they were struggling and it was because of him, then you go back to Hoyer as the guy that is the, the more proven veteran. Uh, but, I mean, Alex Smith had a good game in this one. I would, never would have expected Alex Smith to be good against the Houston defense. 22 of 33 for 243. 
three touchdowns, only sacked twice. Jamal Charles, over 100 yards from scrimmage, 103 in total, including five catches. Had a receiving touchdown in this one. Uh, Just a really nice, balanced performance overall from the Chiefs. I mentioned Cecil Shorts before, Nick. Four for 57 on eight targets. Really not a terrible game. I think he's still the second best receiver of this group. Running game wasn't that bad efficiency-wise. They just had to throw a lot because they fell behind so early. I mean, this game was, I think, 27-9 to at halftime. Alfred Blue finished with nine carries for 42 yards. Grimes, six for 28. Chris Polk, five for 22. This is like the Browns running back situation of last year, though. Three guys where you look at it and you just can't figure out which one's going to gain separation until Arian Foster gets back. Yeah, I feel I kind of feel for the people who started Alfred Blue, and there were probably a lot of them, you know, across fantasy football this week, and just nine carries, like you said, Jonathan Grimes working his way in there, Polk working his way in there. It's just, this is, I think it's going to be like this for the next few weeks until Foster's back in the mix, unfortunately. Yeah, I think Foster coming back though makes things a lot more consistent in the run game overall. I think it minimizes your third and longs with that less strain on your quarterbacks, whether it's Mallet or Hoyer. I think that can only be a good thing. I mean, you you want third and short. That's kind of a no-brainer, but their offense just looks a lot different without Arian Foster. Fortunately for them, it wasn't the IR designated a return that some feared. We could see him back here in just a few weeks. Uh, the Jets were also a surprise of sorts. I, I liked them as a great defensive play for this week. I did not enter a survivor pool this year, which I regret. They were the team I touted on the SiriusXM show as the, the best, I, I thought, best play overall because the Patriots, I, 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 once we knew Brady was going to play in that game, I think they were the biggest favorite. Uh, the Packers were the second biggest favorite, but I just I looked at this and I thought the Browns with that offensive personnel have no chance of winning this game against the Jets defense. Uh, they did lose Antonio Cromartie to an injury in this game. That could be an issue for them going forward, but you still have Darrell Revis there as a shutdown option. Todd Bowles, former Arizona defensive coordinator, taking over as the head coach there. I think the Jets could have an elite defense this year. I mean, the Jets and Bills, both big defensive strides of the last couple of years. Jets maybe kind of like this year's version of Buffalo in some ways. Johnny Manziel had to take over at quarterback when Josh McCowan was concussed. I mean, you, saw, you saw the McCown play, right? Yeah, he. Oh. It, was, it was an attempted like head first dive into the end zone, right? He just got like spun around. Yeah, it basically, was, like, yeah, he transformed into like a helicopter blade, and it, and it was it, it was kind of a scary play because like mid rotation, it almost seemed like his body kind of went limp, and then obviously the ball came out and he just flopped on the ground. But that was that was about as Browns of a play as it gets, and that was what like ten minutes into the game. Yeah, I mean, and, and Manziel on a per attempt basis was actually better. He got sacked three times, did throw a pick. I feel like that's just like the Hoyer-Mallet situation where Manziel's like Mallet, where it's like you just have to use the higher upside guy. I mean, you've got a receiving core in Cleveland that is absolutely awful. No Dwayne Bow in this game. Travis Benjamin scored on a long TD catch. But Benjamin, Gary Barnage, Andrew Hawkins, Brian Hartline, Taylor Gabriel, all these players kept over Terrell Pryor, by the way. That could be the worst collection of pass catchers ever assembled for a Week 1 roster. Well, you got to wonder if this game would have been different if Bo was healthy. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, like you said, I definitely agree with you. I don't know if there's a worse receiving core right now in the league, and, and it makes it a little bit difficult to evaluate guys like McCown and especially Manziel. Um, you know, if Josh Gordon is a part of this team, we're, we're probably talking about a different story today. Um, but, yeah, when you don't have those weapons on the outside, there's just not that much you can do. And, and yeah, you, you kind of expected this, you know, and I think, I don't know if I expected a 31-10 to 10 victory from a, a Jets offense that we didn't think was going to be very good, but 
I don't think it's any surprise that the Browns only scored 10 points. And they couldn't run the ball effectively. I mean, that was their only chance of winning this game was being strong on the ground. Isaiah Crowell had 12 carries for 20 yards, 1.7 yards per carry. Duke Johnson played in this one, 7 for 22, 3.1 yards pop. No receptions for Duke Johnson, which seems like a gross misuse of his ability considering the aforementioned lack of quality among the team's pass catchers. Really nice game from Chris Ivory and Bilal Powell, for that matter. 12 for 62 for Powell, but 20 for 91 on the ground for Chris Ivory. Had a couple of scores, caught a pass for nine yards, so 100 yards from scrimmage, two TDs. Sounds like you had him on your bench in one league. I think I had him going in the FSTA league. Had him going on DraftKings as well, so he was a really nice investment for week one. Yep, had him on my bench. Um, Carlos Hyde will be will be taking over for him tonight. So we'll see how that goes. I'm a little bit skeptical. Obviously, it's, it's, it's tough in this. First of all, we don't know what this San Francisco team is going to be at all. And we'll talk about this maybe at the end of the podcast when we preview Monday's games. But, yeah, I mean, you, you have an established guy in Frank Gore who's been there for years and years. He's gone. We really don't know what that San Francisco offense is going to look like. So I, I guess I kind of went for the upside play there in Carlos Hyde, but I don't know if he's going to be able to top the production that we saw from Ivory. He's the one guy I've got going in the, I think it's the Beat DVR league where I ended up with Carlos Hyde. I just don't know what to expect of him at all. I kind of regret the pick already, even though he hasn't played a snap this season. We'll see how it goes in tonight's matchup, but something about him just seems a little off. Like, I don't know if I believe in the talent. I think maybe just being on a great team at Ohio State made him look a lot better than he really is. I hope he proves me wrong for the sake of, of the team where I've got him, but I didn't invest in him anywhere on DraftKings for week one. Just didn't seem like a guy that was matched up all that well. I think Minnesota's defense could actually be pretty good uh, this year too. I mean, the Bills pulled off another surprising win. Kind of put that right after the Chiefs road upset over Houston, but at least with the Bills, they were at home. We know they've got a good defense, but they win 27-14. Pretty, uh, pretty clear win for them. Carlos Williams looked a lot better on a per-carry basis than LaShawn McCoy. The volume, 17-6 favoring McCoy. A little surprising to see him play with that hamstring injury after they expressed some doubt about that previously. Tyrod Taylor, only to throw it 19 times, Nick, but 14 of 19, 195 yards, had a TD, threw a long TD pass to the slap chop, Percy Harvin, 5 for 79 on 5 targets for Harvin. The rest of the receiving core really didn't do anything. Sammy Watkins was a ghost in this one. Uh, LaShawn McCoy did catch 3 balls for 46 yards, so it could have been worse for McCoy owners. At least he kind of salvaged the day in that regard. Charles Clay, the tight end, only targeted 4 times. But, I mean, this, this, is, this is what happens. You don't throw the ball much. You're, you're going to have low volume across the board. So not necessarily indicative of what you're going to see every week, but when things are going well, this is the recipe for the Bills. Heavy volume in the running game. Taylor efficient when he runs it, not making mistakes, didn't get sacked in this one. Indianapolis' defense is a problem, so I think we've got to see what happens here against better defenses. But Bills fans have to be feeling really good the Monday after week one. Yeah, I think if you can draw up a game plan and execute it the way that the Bills did in week one here, this is exactly what you want when you have Tyrod Taylor as your quarterback. Still an unproven guy um, at the NFL level at least. Like you said, 14 of 19, so you're limiting the attempts there keep pounding the ground game 36 carries overall for the buffalo backs um and, and like you said mccoy didn't really do much you know less than three yards per carry but they didn't go away from him at all and i think i think that's important when you have an experience at the quarterback position to know that it's going to be run first and you don't have to make plays and it kind of allowed him to pick his spots i mean if you look at some of the long completions in this game 51 yard touchdown to percy harvin he basically just ran by the, the, the Indianapolis safety on that one McCoy had a 22 yarder Charles Clay had a 27 yard I mean right there that's 100 yards on three completions and that's you know well over half of, of Tyrod Taylor's yards for the day so I think establishing the run game kind of allowed him 
to pick his spots downfield now and then did rack up 41 yards rushing as well for Tyrod so that's that's the other thing that he offers you know we talked about EJ Manuel and Matt Castle being in contention for this job and you know, neither of those guys are going to give you 40-plus yards on the ground. It just brings up the floor so much when a quarterback can get you 40 or 50 yards on the ground. I mean, if Taylor is anywhere near even like a $6,000 or $6,500 price tag going into Week 2, I think his ownership rates will be pretty high. I mean, the Indianapolis offense, as you'd expect, struggled given how good the Buffalo defense is. Five yards per attempt for Andrew Luck, 26 of 49 for 243. Two TDs, two picks. Big loss, though, T.Y. Hilton going down with a left knee injury. The x-rays were negative. Uh, a bad bruise is what they're saying for now. Further tests likely to come uh, here on Monday. Philip Dorsett, two catches for 45 yards, targeted three times, fumbled twice and lost one. Also had a fumble, at least one fumble in the preseason, so that could be a problem. Dante Moncrief, by comparison, 11 targets, 6 of 46 for a TD. I like him if he's available in your league, especially with more targets being available. Uh, Andre Johnson didn't look good in this one, 4 for 24 on 10 targets. He may draw Darrell Revis in that Week 2 matchup against the Jets. That's next Monday's game. If that happens, that really opens up things for Moncrief on the outside, especially if Antonio Cromartie is forced to miss that game. Uh, so this is an ugly performance from the Colts offense, but they're going to be in a lot of shootouts this year. They're going to be one of the league's top three, top four offenses, I think, most weeks. I wouldn't panic here, even if you're a Frank Gore owner, 8 for 31, 3.9 yards per carry. They just really isn't that bad. Yeah, they were down enough where they had to abandon it. They were down 17 nothing at halftime. So this was one of those games where the flow really didn't work in his favor. Josh Robinson, clearly the backup there, four carries for 11 yards. Just something to think about if you're trying to figure out where you should stash a back behind Frank Gore. Josh Robinson will be that guy. You mentioned Sammy Watkins, no catches. Just I think I've seen two listings. Some some listed three targets, some listed four targets. So somewhere between three and four targets. Um, <laughs> An I mean, ambiguous biggest... target from Tyrod Taylor. We don't yeah. know who it was for. Right. Is he, I mean, is he the biggest disappointment of week one? He's got to be up there. Up I mean, there. Alan, he, he cost more than Allen Robinson did in drafts. And I think for, for a player, I mean, I drafted Sammy Watkins in the fifth round of my primetime league. And I thought, this is going to be a good pick for me as a flex uh, option. He was going right in like the DeAndre Hopkins area, wasn't he? Uh, a little after Hopkins, but it, it just seemed like the volume would be there. And after the catch, he'd do a lot of damage. I think that's still going to happen. I think this is probably a good opportunity to maybe get a slight discount on him in a season-long format. If you have an owner who's not relying on him every week anyway, they might be more willing to part with him now. You give a little less than you would have just a few days ago. So unless there's uh, an issue injury-related there that slowed him down, which I don't think was the case, even though he was banged up throughout this preseason, I think you're going to see a lot more from Sammy Watkins. And just the fact that Tyrod Taylor didn't fall on his face bodes well for that Bills offense as a whole as we move forward. All right, Miami and Washington is the next game we'll talk about. Dolphins 17, Redskins 10 in this one, rivaling the, the Big Cat Bowl as the grossest game of the week. And this one was a little bit better played. I mean, you look at Ryan Tannehill's numbers, 22 of 34, 226 yards and a touchdown, a lot to like there. Um, but it just didn't translate to points for Miami. And they didn't really break this game open or, and go ahead until the, the Jarvis Landry punt return in the second half. Yeah, Kendrick Lamar Miller, uh, 75 yards from scrimmage in this one. Only 13 carries in a game that really wasn't that out of hand. 4.1 yards per carry, but why would you keep running him if you're only getting 4.1 yards per carry? I think Joe Philbin listens to a lot of Lady Gaga. I, I question a lot of his coaching decisions. Probably a bottom five coach in the league. Maybe the Matt Williams of NFL coaches right now. Uh, I'm just not a fan of, of Philbin at all. It's kind of surprising as a guy that came from the Green Bay staff that I'd have so little faith in his ability to run an offense, but... I don't know if it's, he's got too many weapons or what the problem is here. Jordan Cameron led the way, four 
catches, 73 yards, seven targets. Jarvis Landry had a team high, 12 targets, turned that into eight catches for 53 yards. He bailed them out. He scored in the punt return, which helps people in a lot of different leagues that reward uh, TDs for punt returns. Even if you don't get the yardage, oftentimes you get the touchdowns. That's what salvaged his week. Ryan Tannehill lost a fumble in this one. 6.6 yards per attempt is not great against that Washington pass defense. I expected more there. Alfred Morris was probably underdrafted in many leagues. I expected the Miami defense to slow down the run, but he was getting 4.8 yards per carry. Matt Jones even got 4.7 on his six. Kirk Cousins had a very Kirk Cousins sort of game, 21 of 31 for 196, a TD, two picks, only sacked once. I guess there's your silver lining. Uh, Pierre Garçon, six for 74 on eight targets. I like, I like seeing Jordan Reed productive. Seven for 63, scored a TD on 11 targets. But the big news here, I think, is Deshaun Jackson going down with another hamstring injury. It's going to have an MRI on Monday. If we find out that Jackson's going to miss time, do you feel as though Jordan Reed and Pierre Garçon both get significant upgrades? I think by default they do, yeah. I mean, Jackson is obviously the home run hitter for this team. Maybe not a guy who racks up a ton of targets on a weekly basis just because he's, you know, his job is to kind of take the top off of that defense. But I think by default, you know, Garcon kind of moves up. Jordan Reed moves up. If Even looking down the list, Andre Roberts gets a slight bump. I mean, it's like any situation. It's like we talked about with, with Calvin Benjamin, with Jordy Nelson. There, there isn't one guy that you can usually point to on a lot of teams who's just ready to step in, you know, as a number one guy. And, and it ends up just kind of redistributing down the ladder a little bit. And you know, we don't really know what the situation is with Deshaun Jackson yet. He's getting an MRI on Monday, so we should probably have an update within a few hours here. But I don't know if you saw the play. It was non-contact. He was basically just running a go route and, and pulled up, limped to the sideline, looked to be in quite a bit of pain. So, you know, I mean, probably not something that looked like, like a tear or anything, but you know, at least probably one of those situations where you'll, you'll hear the word, he heard a pop. So yeah, never good. Pop and, and hamstring and muscles in general just aren't good when they're in the same sentence. No, I, I agree with you there. But, I mean, Alfred Morris, I think, was the standout in this game. I, he was, I, as I mentioned before, I felt like he was underdrafted a lot of places, especially in leagues that were full-point PPR leagues because he doesn't contribute in that facet. I think the overcorrection there made him a bargain in those formats. Uh, Rams 34-31 winners at home over Seattle. They had a big lead in this one. Late in the fourth quarter, Seattle kind of rallying to push it to overtime and then making the curious choice of the onside kick to begin overtime. With the new overtime rules especially, look, I know the Seahawks are bold, and when it works, we love Pete Carroll for it, and when it doesn't, we're scratching our heads wondering why he's such an idiot. But given the Rams' offense, I mean, really, like I know you don't necessarily want to kick it to Tavon Austin because he can be a game-breaker and he had a great game in this one. I still don't understand this decision. I really don't. Well, if you ask Pete Carroll, it wasn't that wasn't the decision. The decision was to kick it deep. I don't. Did you see his post game? I didn't. On that? I, I don't. I don't. I don't believe him. I think he's lying. I, I think he's a flat out liar. He's in totally this case. lying. He, he said it was. He just mishit it. I mean, you could tell like everyone on the kickoff team was playing it as an onside kick. I mean, he didn't. He didn't like. I don't even know what the right word would be for a kicker to like. I guess mishit. You know, he. It didn't look like he was going full strength on. It. I mean, he was clearly an onside kick. They showed Pete Carroll's reaction on the sideline. He didn't. He didn't look surprised by the fact that it was an onside kick. I think no, he wasn't yelling at anybody. Not that that's his style, right. but Stephen Hauschka is a good kicker. It's not like he's the kind of guy that's going to miss hit a ball and have it drop in perfectly where an onside kick would right. go. Weird thing about this too, if you're watching the end game, the mm. officials initially ruled that the ball hit the ground off the tee that he like topped it and then made it pop up, and he didn't. He just hit like a little like half wedge where he kind of just chipped yeah. the bottom of it to pop it up like that. I, I don't know how the officials missed that on the initial. View. Can you, like, well, can you not do that? It, it, well, here's what happened. It, because of that, the return guy who on the front line 
signal a fair catch, which you can't do if the ball hits, hits the, the ground. ground. Right. Yeah. And they're going to have a five-yard penalty and a re-kick, even though the Rams caught the initial onside kick. They, they corrected it. They got it right, thankfully. But what a strange call to get wrong. Like, How does the line judge not see if... like That's the thing he's watching for, I believe, on that play. Unless he was watching the, the he probably wasn't players. expecting it. That's to be sure. But I, yeah, I, I guess yeah, that's the thing. It was uh, it was a Hank basket moment for the line judge, perhaps. But nevertheless, I mean, it's uh, that's like kind of scary. That the officials got that wrong and, and had to overturn it without I think without video review at least. But this was a game that had a lot more offense than I expected. Yeah. Benny Cunningham contributed as a pass catcher as many expected. He was a three thousand dollar player on DraftKings. I had him in a ton of lineups. Happy to see him get four for seventy seven as a pass catcher on seven targets. Only 16 carries for 45 yards on the ground, but Seattle's going to be strong against the run. I don't think that's indicative of what you'd likely get from Cunningham in future weeks. So if Trey Mason is forced to miss more time and if Todd Gurley's not ready till week three or week four, I think Cunningham can continue to be useful here in the early weeks of the season, just given what he can do as a pass catcher. Yeah, I then I I have on our little outline here. He pretty much did exactly what everyone thought he would. You know, mm-hmm. not I don't think anybody was expecting you know, any more than 50, 60 yards on the ground. But you know, four catches, seventy seven yards. That he's the guy that you know was kind of sneaky as a as a pass catcher last year. I think he was t- definitely in the top ten uh, for running backs as far as far as receptions. I think he might even been in the top seven there. And as a guy who is you know a second, third string running back for most of the year, so almost a specialist kind of coming out of the backfield. And we saw that at work on Sunday. I wanted to ask you, do you think Seattle lost this game, obviously as a, a somewhat of a heavy favorite in interdivision, or do you think St. Louis won it? I actually think St. Louis kind of won this one. I mean, they got plays on special teams. Tavon Austin, very explosive in this one. Nick Foles didn't turn it over, at least not with picks. He had two fumbles that he lost, but that's the big thing for me. If you're not throwing picks against that Seattle secondary, you're giving yourself a chance to win. He's only sacked twice, so you didn't have that many negative plays in the passing game. I think that was pretty big. Look at their offense. The personnel doesn't wow you at all, but at the same time, they found a way to get it done. That's something Jeff Fisher's done throughout his career. I mean, Seattle or, Seattle's one of those teams, kind of like Baltimore, when they go on the road, they do become a lot more vulnerable, and St. Louis tends to be a team that plays quite a bit better at home. So this is always one of those tricky matchups, I think, that people look at and they just think, well, Seattle's a lot better than St. Louis, Seattle should roll, and they never really seem to going on the road to St. Louis. I mean, the Seattle offense, because of the fourth quarter, Turned in a pretty respectable performance overall. 104 yards from scrimmage for Marshawn Lynch. Russell Wilson went 32 of 41 for 251. Had a TD pass to Jimmy Graham. He was sacked six times, picked off once. That Rams defense really showed up overall. Yeah, we saw that in the final play in overtime too, where you know fourth and one, Seattle needed to convert around the 45 yard line, I think, and Marshawn Lynch ends up losing yards as Aaron Donald just broke right through and. I mean, we've been hearing about this St. Louis pass rush and the St. Louis front four for a while now, and it, and it finally looks like when they're all healthy and everyone's on the field, this could be a very good team. So, I mean, is, is St. Louis going to be good enough to actually challenge for like a, for a wild card spot in this division? I mean, this is a huge win, obviously, coming out of week one, and then Seattle goes to Green Bay uh, this coming Sunday night. So, I mean, you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself, but you could very easily see the Seattle team opening up 0-2. Yeah, you could. I mean, I think with St. Louis, they're going to be an 8-8 and team, even at best. This division is so tough, and offensively, even though it wasn't a bad performance in Week 1, I do worry about them week to week. Maybe once Todd Gurley gets back, though, that changes, because they could feed Gurley 15, 20 carries a game in the second half. They could have one of the most talented backs in the league on their hands. We just don't know where he's going to be physically once that time comes, if they'll even turn him loose to that extent another big play from Tyler Lockett too by the way punt return for a touchdown he had an absolutely fantastic 
preseason, carries it right over into week one. Could be a, just a huge difference maker from the third round of this past draft. Yeah, he had a punt, a punt return for a touchdown, and you already mentioned Tavon Austin did the same, kind of tiptoeing down the sidelines there for St. Louis. So kind of offsetting special teams touchdowns there. I'm still a little worried about the St. Louis receiving core, though. I mean, Tavon Austin is such a game-breaker, but two catches for negative two yards there. So he's more he's going to contribute more out of the backfield, it looks like, and that's where he scored another touchdown on Sunday and on special teams. Stedman Bailey had a big catch late in this one to kind of to keep St. Louis marching down the field, big catch over Richard Sherman. But at the same time, he's kind of in that same vein as Austin, way undersized. Um, you, know, you kind of use him in a game-breaker role, not a guy you can necessarily depend on week to week. And you do have Jared Cook, who's been you know as, as inconsistent as it gets, definitely going to have big games, but can also disappear. So if there's one thing that's going to do this St. Louis offense in, I think it's that receiving core. Yeah, 5 for 85 from Cook in the opener, but if you went 2 for 20 on four targets in week two, would you really be that surprised? No, not at all, not at all. And we, we did see a touchdown from former Wisconsin great Lance Kendricks. I don't know if you saw that play, Cam Chancellor's replacement, Deion Bailey, just falling down inexplicably, allowing that. And that was the game-tying touchdown. And after Seattle had stormed back with 18 points in the fourth quarter, uh, Foles just lofted one up for Kendricks, and, and Bailey just, just tripped over his own feet and went down. So if, if nothing else, that uh, it almost reminds me of the replacement ref scandal. You know, Cam Chancellor's leverage just shot up with, with that <laughs> play alone. It, yeah. like, he's just like, oh, yeah, you don't, you don't want to pay up for me? Well, this is what's going to happen. I don't understand their lack of willingness to pay Cam Chancellor, but... You know, it's not, uh, not my I've call. Heard, I think he, he has two or three years remaining on his deal. I think like three, including this year. So I think it was ESPN Radio I was listening to the other day was, was discussing this. And basically the point they made was Seattle doesn't want to set a precedent of restructuring contracts so early. Yeah, you know? and, well. And, that, and that's fair. But at the same time, when you see the, the drop-off here, and, and Cam Chancellor has probably emerged as a top-five safety. I don't think there's any debate there over the last few years. And, you know, I think you can see both sides there for sure. And it, the thing is, it doesn't sound like they're that far apart. Yeah, I mean, he's a freak for the position, too. It just seems like a guy you restructure, you give him a little more money, you make him happy, and you just keep him as part of your core. I, I, I definitely see their their hesitation as far as not wanting to have other players come to them. They're going to have a problem retaining talent soon anyway. It's just the byproduct just happens, yeah. of having that much cheap talent, young talent on your roster. You draft that well, and you find guys in the draft that effectively you're going to have to pay up eventually. So I don't know. With Cam Chancellor, it just seems like something where they should meet him and, and just say, look, you're one of our top three, top four players. We're going to do this. And someone else may end up being unhappy, but they don't have that many players on this roster you look at and say, if they lost that guy, they'd be completely different. Cam Chancellor is one of those players. Right. And you mentioned I mean, almost drafting so well can be a curse, and we, and especially in leagues with salary caps. And you see this in the NBA, like Oklahoma City almost, curse themselves by going Westbrook, Durant, Ibaka, Harden, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you got you know four guys who you want to be your core going forward, and you just can't pay them. And yeah, you can only afford three, really. Right, and we see this every year in, in, in other leagues and in the NFL, especially if, if you're a good team, it's just it's just hard to keep them together. And we saw them lose, um, you know, we saw them lose Brandon Browner. They've, they've just lost parts of this team each year, and that's just kind of the product of being successful. But they've still had quite a bit of continuity, too. Mm-hmm. So kudos to them for doing it they're one of the teams i've come to hate over time as a packer fan because they've had a lot of success against green bay uh, in particular uh, but nice to see them fall to st louis in the opener fantasy football just got a whole lot more interesting week one DraftKings will be hosting the biggest fantasy football contest ever giving out over 10 million dollars in prizes uh, it's going to be great because monday night the millionaire maker the first one will finish up two million to first place they're doing it again for week two go to draftkings.com now enter promo code rotowire to play for free for your shot at one million dollars 
in the Week 2 Play Action Contest. Promo code ROWIRE for free entry now with your first deposit at DraftKings.com. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Arizona 31, New Orleans 19. Carson Palmer is back with a vengeance. It changes the complexion of this Arizona offense in a big way. 19 for 32, 307 yards, three TDs. Andre Ellington even having a big game in this one. 12 for 69 and a TD on the ground, but he suffered a strained PCL in his knee. His availability for the next couple of weeks in doubt. Further tests coming here Monday. Chris Johnson had a much bigger role than David Johnson as the secondary guy. Uh, David Johnson did have a long touchdown reception late in this one, a 55-yard TD catch. It was his only touch or target of the game. Larry Fitzgerald is back, Nick, six catches for 87 yards. John Brown had a long TD. If you used him in a tournament, you had to be happy. Four catches for 46 yards and a score. I mean, the Arizona offense did pretty much what I expected them to be able to do. New Orleans defense is questionable, especially when you take them outside of the Superdome. The the biggest surprise for me, though, Chris Johnson, 10 carries. David Johnson, zero. Yeah, and we're going to see those numbers probably change, too, in week two, especially if Andre Ellington is out, and I think that's kind of the expectation right now. They haven't really released a timetable on that, but it, I mean, is Chris Johnson going to be the number the number one guy now? I think he'll get the like the larger share of the carries overall, but I would think David Johnson probably gets some of the goal line carries, which mm-hmm. could flip it and still make him more valuable, even though Chris Johnson had a larger role in the offense in week one. Maybe it's just a, a case where they're still trying to develop certain aspects of David Johnson's game, and there are some limitations we don't know about, but I have to think we see him get a lot more involved. Ellington seems very likely to miss week two. We'll try to get an update here as the week uh, rolls along, but Michael Floyd, one catch for 18 yards on one target. I think it's going to be a couple of weeks before he's back to 100% as far as getting his usual share of looks in this game plan, but I also think it's going to be difficult week in and week out to know you know, which two of Fitz, Brown, and Floyd are going to be valuable. Maybe they'll have a few shootouts where all three are valuable, but in that division, you know, facing off, especially against St. Louis and Seattle, you got four games in division especially where I think they're going to have some difficulty moving the ball. Just a big, big gain for them having Palmer back, though. I can't emphasize that enough. Nice to see him producing at a high clip coming off the ACL tear. Now, the Saints offense had a really strange set of lines here. I mean, Mark Ingram only had nine carries for 24 yards. Uh, Arizona had a little bit of a lead in this one, but never to the point where you'd think they would have completely abandoned the run uh, in the Saints offense. But Mark Ingram, nine carries for 24 yards. Kerry Robinson, eight for 19, both backs below three yards per carry. Drew Brees had an extremely Drew Brees sort of game. 30 for 48, 355, only 7.4 yards per attempt. One TD, one pick, only sacked twice. But Mark Ingram led the way as a receiver. Eight catches for 98 yards, and Kiri Robinson was up there. Five for 51. Willie Sneed had a 63-yard catch. That really boosted up Brees' numbers. From there, you've got Brandon Cooks, four for 49, eight targets. Brandon Coleman, four for 41 with the TD, seven targets. And Marcus Colston, three for 29 on seven targets. Really, it's the, a bad day for Cooks and Colston. Coleman, if you rolled the dice, actually paid off in a pretty big way. Nothing really from the tight ends. Five targets to Benjamin Watson and Josh Hill, an afterthought. Yeah, I think people, a lot of people were expecting a little bit of a rebound season from Drew Brees, and his numbers were good, 30 for 48, 355 yards. But the touchdowns aren't there. The receiving core just looked a little meh. You know, you, you, like you said, the tight end situation isn't great in New Orleans. Um, and when you're relying on a guy in Brandon Cooks who's you know more of a speed guy, um, you know, undersized at five ten, kind of in the, the Randall Cobb type of mode to be your your number one guy, you just you don't have as much of a 
much of a downfield threat. And Marcus Colson, like you said, only three catches for 29 yards there. It just This Arizona defense is good, but they're not that good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is a, a function of Saints offense always taking a step back on the road. Look at the home road splits for Drew Brees in this offense. You'll be kind of surprised at just how much they fall off when they're not playing in that dome. So I, I'm disappointed for sure. I'm a little worried as a Brees owner. I, I think the volume this week bailed him out. I mean, that long play to Snead in particular pushed him up over 300 yards. You take that away and 280 and one touchdown from Drew Brees certainly isn't what you paid for. I, I'd be very concerned if you don't have a quality backup right now and you have Drew Brees on your roster, I think you look at the waiver wire, see if Mariota or someone like that's available, pick them up because there may be some weeks where Brees is on the road where you actually want to turn to somebody else. It just seems like this is a different iteration of that Saints offense. Yeah, and, and on the plus side, though, looking at it from a positive uh, point of view, they're home against Tampa Bay next week. So that will you, you got to like Breeze in this offense to rebound there. If they don't, then I think you maybe start considering other options. I'm already thinking about Breeze for the Millie Maker for week two because if there's even a slight discount there coming off this performance, I'd be ready to pounce. There may not be. I think that may be priced in. And th- th- Again, the overall numbers weren't so bad that it would significantly drive down the price, but if there's any discount at all, he has to be a strong consideration uh, because of that matchup. Chargers 33, Lions 28. Lions going to lie on Nick. They had a 21-3 to lead in the first half. Eric Ebron. Eric Ebron led the way for the receiving core. Four catches, 53 yards, and a TD. Much better than he was last year when he was pretty much invisible after being a first-round pick in 2014. Amir Abdullah looked pretty good. Seven carries for 50 yards. Joyk Bell, six for 14. Abdullah also got in the end zone. Caught four balls for 44 yards on four targets. The Lions targeted Amir Abdullah just as much as they targeted Kelvin Johnson. Kelvin Johnson was targeted four times, caught two balls for 39 yards. I know they had a big lead. But San Diego rallied enough in the third quarter, especially, where Megatron should have been getting a ton of looks in the fourth quarter, and, quarter, and, it, quarter, and, it, did, and it didn't like a massive failing on the part of the coaching staff. Yeah, this, this Lions offense, they went up 21-3. to um, they, they, were, they were up 21-3 to in the second quarter, and it basically just shut down after that. And they had a late touchdown to Eric Ebron. That was uh, you know just kind of a... Chargers playing prevent basically at that point um and, and the Lions were able to march down the field but it was it was just far too late and I had I had Megatron going in in my my most important league and I've been burned once again there I had Detroit in my in my uh pick'em league so got burned there as Ooh. well you just you just don't ever trust the Lions kids nope. all right that is that's the biggest thing you look at the look at the Lions drives after going up 21 to 3 um, and, that, and that came, looks like, with two minutes left in the second quarter. They're up 21-3. to three. After that, next, next drives, punt, uh, end of the half. So only one play there. That doesn't really count. Interception, interception, punt, punt, and then finally that late touchdown. And, you know, six plays, four plays, three plays, four plays, one play, drives. It's just they just completely shut down. And, you know, I think it, it went up 21-3. to three. They're starting to look like the, the offense that we expected and that we've, that we've seen kind of in – in flashes over the last couple of years, you know, when, when they have the weapons that they do in, in um, Calvin Johnson and Colton Tate, Tate only finished with 24 yards on four catches. He at least had eight targets, but still not a great day there. I do like Abdullah a lot. He looked really, really good in this one. He's a little shiftier even than I, than I remembered at Nebraska. So I think he, you know, I know we want to talk a little bit about the, the distribution that we're going to see between him and Joyke Ballard. I think he's kind of running away with this job after week one. And obviously it is still early, but 
if you're just taking it, you know, off of regular season production, what we what we've seen so far, I think he he made by far the biggest impression. Might be a guy that just because of his Week One performance, if we were drafting again today, it would be drafted with the likes of Latavius Murray and Carlos Hyde and some of those like late fourth round backs where there was a lot of uncertainty because Bell just didn't look nearly as as good. Maybe part of that's the rust and coming off the injury, but I, I just I look at this as a situation where Abdullah is the more dominant back, uh, much more dynamic, brings so much more to the table. Even though Bell's not a bad pass catcher, I just think Abdullah is so much more likely to break off long runs and, and get long gains after the catch as a receiver. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the expected split between those two guys actually favors Abdullah even more than we expected just based on how things were flowing here in week one. On the Chargers side, slow start for the offense, but I mean, Phillip Rivers had maybe the best passing performance of the week. 35 of 42, 404, 9.6 yards per target, two TDs, did have two picks early, a couple sacks in this one. Uh, the running game behind him was ample. Melvin Gordon, 14 carries, 51 yards. Danny Wood had 12 carries for 42 yards, two TDs on the ground, getting the carries in close too, so you really have to worry about Melvin Gordon short term. Uh, Melvin Gordon was targeted three times as a pass catcher, but Danny Woodhead targeted seven times, four catches for 20 yards for Woodhead, three for 16 for Gordon. Ladarius Green had a good game, five for 74 in a TD on six targets. Stevie Johnson, six for 82 in a TD on six targets. And Keenan Allen in full point PPR leagues went absolutely crazy. 15 catches on 17 targets for 166 yards. One other note for Melvin Gordon, he had lost a fumble in this game too. So you really have to be a little concerned. If you're Melvin Gordon owner right now, you just don't know what exactly that distribution is going to look like here over the next few weeks. Right. And Gordon only had um, three carries after the fumble, and that's when Woodhead kind of was on the field a little bit more, especially in third down situations. And that's what we expected, I think. There was, there were questions about Melvin Gordon's readiness to block in passing situations, and obviously Danny Woodhead has proven himself over and over as, a, as an ideal guy to, to kind of be a check down and then gain yards after the catch type of running back um I think that's just what we're going to see going forward you know there are there were a few concerns about Gordon's ball security and he obviously didn't do a whole lot to to shore that up in week one but I think he's still going to be the number one guy I mean he, he got off to a strong start in the first half San Diego got down started turning to the pass a little bit more and that's why we saw 42 attempts for Rivers and like you mentioned Keenan Allen 15 receptions on 17 targets yeah, just absolutely ridiculous. Game. In, insane volume. And I, when, when Mario and I talked about the, the matchups on Friday, I mean, Stevie Johnson, much cheaper on DraftKings. It seemed like Stevie Johnson matched up a lot better against the Lions defense than Allen did. But Allen was lining up left side, right side, outside, inside, everywhere. I mean, he was all over the place and the Lions just simply couldn't stop him. A really encouraging performance from him as he kicks off year three coming off of a very disappointing sophomore campaign. I think Keenan Allen did a lot to boost up his stock. I think if you got a discount on him on draft day, many people did. You're feeling really good about that investment as of right now. Titans 42, Bucks 14. Good versus evil. Good coming out on top in a big way. Marcus Mariota, 13 of 16 for 209 yards, four TDs, no picks, only sacked twice. Had a 158.3 passer rating. I believe that's perfect on that scale. I'm not sure why they didn't adjust that scale when they created it. A 95.7 QBR, which I don't even understand that scale. I think that one does go up to 100, yeah. but pretty much perfect. As close to perfect as you can be other than the three uh, incompletions there. Fantastic debut for Mariota. Jameis Winston on the other side had some issues. 16 of 33 for 210. 6.4 yards per attempt. Did have two TDs a little bit later in this one. Sacked four times. Two picks. Doug Martin ran well, but the Bucks had to abandon the run. 11.52, 4.7 yards per carry. 
Uh, Austin Safarian Jenkins was the big producer for the Bucks. Five catches, 110 yards, two TDs. I mean, this offense without Mike Evans is a lot more difficult to, uh, to, to get behind because I think Evans does so much to not only stretch the field but draw away defensive attention. That makes Vince Jackson all the more effective. I don't think it's a case where the Titans' defense is all that good. Maybe it's a league average defense or something along those lines in the best-case scenario. I think this is really just the case of a young quarterback still finding his way, but the Bucks missing their best offensive player. Yeah, this was one of the biggest surprises to me in a game that really didn't have a ton riding on it. But I, I picked Tampa Bay. I was pretty confident. I think we talked about this last week. I know I talked about it with James on Friday, and we were both very in favor of Tampa Bay. I mean, what we thought was the better defense. Um, you know, Mariota was good in the preseason, but it was such a limited sample. And, you know, the throws he was making, it was kind of the same criticisms that he saw at Oregon. You know, short throws, not throwing into tough windows. But, I mean, he really did it all. And I wouldn't say he was he was just launching the ball downfield, but – he was putting the ball in where it needed to be, and he was accurate. 13 of 16, like you said, those four touchdowns all in the first half. First rookie quarterback to ever throw four touchdowns in any half, so he has that going for him. Jameis Winston, you mentioned two interceptions from him. His first career pass went for a pick six. Do you know who the last quarterback was to do that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe like a Joey Harrington? Brett Favre. Oh, Brett Favre. So I, I did see that yesterday. It's only a matter of time before Jameis Winston is traded to the Packers and becomes a, a three-time MVP. And if, if Jameis ever ends up on the Packers roster, <laughs> even as a backup, I may have to just not have a favorite team anymore. Why, you don't just, like Jameis? I, I just, no. I, I, can't, I can't even ironically like Jameis. He's, he's, he's not a bad guy. He's the worst. He's the absolute worst. And I feel I feel bad because I would like the Bucks otherwise. I actually think, like, Mike Evans is a really interesting player, but now I'm kind of like subconsciously at least rooting against Mike Evans to be a complete failure this year. I, I want Jameis to flop miserably. I want Jameis to be as bad as Akili Smith. On. Jameis is a good guy. I think he kind of, there's already like you see the Jamarcus Russell comparisons just because of the size and the arm strength. Because of the dad like, bod? Right, exactly. The dad bod. I don't think, I think he's on a, a much higher level like mentally. Jamarcus, Jamarcus Russell, Russell should sue someone for libel for having Jameis Winston compared to him. Like, that's that is that's libelous it is it is but yeah very disappointing just dis, uh debut from Jameis Winston like you said he was able to salvage it with those two late touchdowns I really like Safarian Jenkins this year he was a guy I was disappointed that I couldn't grab in any leagues I think he's going to be great especially with Mike Evans out do we have a timetable for Evans is he is, I think he's questionable kind of good it's just gonna yeah be week per- perpetually point. questionable for now for for it's Mike tough. Evans so tough I mean Austin Safarian Jenkins more valuable at least in the short term I don't know if once Evans gets back on the field, if you're going to rely on him every single week, but probably a guy you're thinking about if you have tight end trouble and he's available. Seven targets, a good number of looks, second behind Vincent Jackson in this one. Again, two TDs, five for 110, a really nice performance uh, for him. You know, I, I missed out on the Tyler Eifert explosion yesterday, too. Bengals big winners in Oakland, 33-13. Eifert, nine catches, 104 yards, two TDs, 12 targets, probably the top waiver tight end in a week where Ladarius Green was good. Uh, we just mentioned the efficiency of Austin Safarian Jenkins, but I think I like Eifert the most of this bunch. Andy Dalton, 25 of 34 for 269, two TDs. Jeremy Hill gets turned, scores twice, 19 carries for 63 yards. Gio Bernard is actually better on a per carry basis, eight for 63, also caught six balls for 25 yards. On the Oakland side, free Marcel Reese. Other teams would be so much better at utilizing this guy. He scores twice in the opener. I think I read something on Sunday morning suggesting he actually lost some weight this offseason, so he might be a little bit more shifty. Three catches for 26 yards, two TDs. Derek Carr suffered a hand injury, had to leave this game, had x-rays that came back negative. It was Matt McGloin playing for most of the game. 
less efficient even than Carr upon his entrance. 23 of 31 for 142. He threw the two TD passes to Reese, but this is just an ugly spot for Oakland. It makes me grateful I don't have any shares of Amari Cooper. Five catches for 47 yards on nine targets. Michael Crabtree, five for 37 on eight targets. The only silver lining for Latavius Murray, who had 80 yards from scrimmage, that he had seven receptions. So in a full-point PPR league, he actually had a decent week, even though he only had 11 carries for 44 yards because the Raiders simply just fell so far behind. I feel like an idiot. I took the under on a number of times you would use the word turnt on this podcast. And you took I, the under on that? I took the under. I Never take the I under on I my turnt. research, apparently. Um, I was just glad that Amari Cooper came out of this game alive after almost being killed by Pac-Man Jones on the field. Um, Pac-Man I really, attempted still murder, to didn't decide he? what happened there. Pac-Man ripped off his helmet, like shoved his head into the helmet afterward. Um, I don't know if that was a little bit of a welcome to the league type of thing or what, but might be seeing a suspension or at least a fine for Pac-Man. So Pac-Man's past record may may shape the potential I punishment think it might, here. Yeah. So if you're in a league that uh, that you're required to own a troubled defensive back, it might be time to look elsewhere. I wish more leagues had that requirement. I think it would make things a lot more interesting. I mean, I, I think so too. To mix it up, like you should be required to have a player who's been to jail or something like like your flex spot. Um, like, I mean, or or someone someone who's been like either ejected for fighting or yeah. flagged for throwing a punch on the yeah, field. Yeah, like, like a wild card spot, kind of yeah. like, like an enforcer. I mean, like Cortland Finnegan a few years back would have been the perfect guy been for like that. Like a league. number one overall pick in that format. Just, just like, if you get like six points for every ejection or like, you know, he, he, for, for, for injections uh, induced too. I mean, right. like for getting other players to simply lose it. Like there's the right. fight he had with Andre Johnson a few years ago. and. <laughs> Like Andre that's the, Johnson, that's the standard for on-field fights at this point, I think. I mean, Andre Johnson doesn't ever really seem like a guy that's going like, to mm-hmm. lose his cool, but Cortland Finnegan could just get under players' skin. Probably if you, if you ask guys that played in the league against Finnegan, I bet he'd come up consistently as one of the DBs they hated playing against the most. He was my least favorite player in the league. I'm somebody who it takes a lot for me to hate players. I mean, I, I love Jameis. I love Pac-Man. But, I mean, I hit, the Titans are my least favorite team for AFC South reasons, and, and he was just the worst to play against. Um yeah, I think we should get that going. Maybe a Rotowire, like a PPF point per fine league. Um, we could offer rankings on the site for that. I mean, Sue, I would, I would, Sue would be the first pick. Right, I would happily head that up. Um, Sue's going for, if you have a $100 budget, it's an auction. Sue's going for 99 or like whatever the seems, max bid is. That seems low, yeah. Someone's going to pay that for Indomitian Sue. Right. All right, well, we got the Ravens and Broncos in Denver. This game was ugly. Ugh. I expected Ugh. so much more. I watched most of it, too. Like I said, I didn't have the red zone IV hooked up, so this was the game that I had in market. Denver 19, Baltimore 13. Denver's pass rush looks amazing with Von Miller and DeMarcus Ware. I mean, Wade Phillips as the D coordinator there looks like he's going to get a lot out of that pass rush. I think Denver's going to win a lot of low-scoring games. The Peyton is done cries are getting louder. 24 for 40, 175 yards and a pick. Very ugly game there. Demarius Thomas is going to have some x-rays on his hand. He finished 7 for 60 on 11 targets. Really disappointing showing from him. Brandon McManus went off in this one. I had him going in a couple of leagues. He was blasting long field goals, and I was just I was celebrating like my team had just won the Super Bowl, which seems like a totally rational thing to do when your kicker starts bombing 50-yard field goals. On the other side of this one, actually, before we even get there, the running game for Baltimore sputtered. C.J. Anderson and Ronnie Hillman each had 12 carries. C.J. Anderson stayed in the game, but did suffer a sprained toe. Doesn't seem like much, but if something like that becomes like a turf toe injury, that could become more serious, so it's at least worth monitoring. 3.4 yards per carry for Hillman, 2.4 yards per carry for Anderson. Uh, really just a horrible performance overall for the running game on both sides. Buck Allen, Justin Forsett, 23 combined carries, 73 yards. 
The Ravens didn't have a pass catcher go over 25 yards. Steve Smith, seven targets, only two catches for 13 yards. Aqib Talib did a good job on him. But Steve Smith dropped a TD in the end zone in this one. That was a pretty big drop for those who had him going. Would have been a huge play for the Ravens at that time. Emmanuel Sanders, eight catches, 65 yards, 12 targets. Seemed like he was just faster than the DBs for the Ravens, but couldn't break loose for a big play. Uh, there, were, there were two or three times where he got behind the defense and was just overthrown, and both of them would have been touchdowns. Uh, but he looked, yeah, he looked just like himself. He was a guy that I was kind of kind of touting as somebody who would take a step back this season in conjunction with Peyton Manning struggling a little bit more. Um, but no, he was his usual self, being catching the ball all over the field on the sidelines, coming across the middle, just doing basically exactly what he did last year. So that was certainly encouraging. Um, I know you mentioned Peyton Manning struggled a little bit in this one. It seemed that he was able to march down the field from like, you know, from like 20 yard line, you know, Denver's 20 to like, he'd get to the Baltimore 40 and then that offense would just shut down. And that's where the field goals came in. And, you know, any, any pass under 10 yards, he looked great. Ask him to throw down the field and things got a little bit dicier. Pretty big blow for the Ravens defense late in this one. Terrell Suggs will miss the rest of the season for something an Achilles injury. I think that's going to be a, a tough thing for them to recover from, kind of the leader of that defense as it is currently constructed. But, man, you talk about a game that was really short of expectations. This one, I think, was maybe the most disappointing game that we had on the slate in Week 1. Dallas 27, New York 26. I feel bad for Giants fans out there. Actually, no, I don't feel bad at all. I'm just I'm, I'm sick of the Giants. They're one of those teams that have also uh, kind of had some big wins over the Packers over the last few years. So certainly not uh, a team I feel sorry for at any point. The big loss in this one, though, Des Bryant expected to miss four to six weeks with a broken bone in his right foot. That could be a huge blow to this Dallas offense. You look at the running game. Joseph Randall led the way, 16 carries for 65 yards. Darren McFadden, 6 for 16. Lance Dunbar became the pass-catching back, 8 catches for 70 yards. Perhaps a a Shane Vereen-type role on tap for Lance Dunbar, but it does look like Randall is the preferred ball carrier. Not a huge surprise, but given the uncertainty late last week as far as Darren McFadden being named the starter at one point, I think it's nice to finally have some clarity in a game that counts. The big story for me in this game, aside from the Dez injury, though, Eli Manning, you know, just a horrible clock management late in this one. Tom Coughlin opting for a field goal instead of going forward on fourth and short. Odell Beckham held in check, just five catches for 44 yards. Took a good shot to the head in this one, too. It was cleared of a concussion. Returned was to the game though? soon after. I don't know. Did you did you hear, like, the, the commentary when that play happened? It was it was bizarre. It was weird. Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, he took a huge hit, and he ended up fumbling on the play. Um, it was an incomplete pass, right? It, it was one of those plays. Right. Yeah, he just did, like, hadn't completed the catch. Right. Yeah, and it ended up being— He got up, rocked. The Giants though. ended up retaining the ball, and he's on the field the next play. And it, I think the Collinsworth or whoever, um, Al Michael Swiffer, was on the game basically said, yeah, he he just avoided the medical staff. Like, they kept trying to chase him down on the sidelines, and he just he just wouldn't let them and just went back in the that's, game. That's like, how the hack. that allowed? That's the hack. I mean, I, I think that, that goes on the officials. That's something that the league will probably review and say, hey, look, if you see a guy that gets hit like that— just stop the play clock, stop the clock, and let the personnel come on the field to address him. Because well, he got off the field fine, but like I mean, it was clear that he was he shaking got up. Hit and like, hard I don't, th- I don't think avoiding the the medical authorities should be an option. That's, no. that's like saying like if you if you like clearly robbed a store and then avoid just, the police, just ran away from the cops, and there's like, well, well I mean, right. we don't know. I mean, we, well, it's a hit and run accident, basically. Yeah, it's, it's like, like, it's like hitting someone where, on the road. You know where he is? Like, it, it was just an odd. I just think that was like. For as much of an emphasis has been put on limiting head injuries, treating head injuries properly, 
to see that on national TV wasn't exactly great for the league. But I mean, to be fair, Beckham didn't look to be affected by it. But at the same time, you don't. I mean, you, you have know. no idea. You have no idea. This guy's got a helmet on. You don't know what he's thinking. It, I don't know. I, I didn't. Th- I didn't necessarily agree with the the Giants medical staff's decision to not force him out of the game for at least a play. Yeah, it, you, it didn't seem like he really went through any protocol no, whatsoever. So I'm curious to see if there's any fallout from that. I would keep I an eye on him do. today, especially. I mean, if he presents any symptoms today, that that wouldn't be a surprise just based on the uh, the vicious hit that he took in that game. That was a, a lowering. Like uh, I think uh, which safety hit him? I forget who it was, but clearly led with the helmet too wasn't penalized for the hit yeah that was a little bit of a tough one it was kind of a spear almost because like Beckham was tucked underneath and like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was necessarily a targeting yeah, play but still I mean helmet to helmet the thing about it too is the the, the player on offense in Beckham's case he, he lowered his head because he, he was kind of crouching down right. so if where you go to hit someone with your shoulder if, if, if their head level changes suddenly their head level is where your head level was and everything just gets messed up but Giants Offense overall, I mean, Rashad Jennings, 13 carries, Andre Williams, 6. Four yards a carry for Jennings, did get in the end zone with a rushing touchdown. Shane Vereen, four catches for 46 yards. What a mess otherwise at receiver, though. Ruben Randall, 3 for 23, 5 targets. I'm not interested in him. I I just thought the Giants' offense could be a lot better against Dallas. I thought this game would be more of a shootout, but it was actually more defensive touchdowns and just a case where Eli really never got off the ground. 5.4 yards per attempt, only sacked once, but no TDs. No picks. Are you worried if you're a Giants fan right now, if you're an Eli owner? I mean, a little bit. I'm, I'm not an Eli owner, and I hope not many people are, so hopefully this doesn't affect too many people. I guess if you're in a 2QB league or in a deeper league, you probably do have him. Um, but I don't know. I'm not too worried. This was just a weird game. Like The Giants had no business losing this game with how they played defensively. A couple of kind of fluke plays. Um, late. I think it was, it was third or late in the third quarter, early fourth quarter, that second pick six. It was, I mean, both both of the of the Romo picks in this game were tipped, kind of fluky plays. And, you know, it just looked like Dallas was dead in the water so many times. Um, and you mentioned the Eli Manning clock management, which was, I think, a little bit of him and a little bit of Coughlin. Um, and Dallas just kept shooting themselves in the foot. You know, first he had Jeremy Mincy with the, the 15-yard penalty on what would have been an, an upcoming, I think it was a third and short or fourth and short when he knocked the helmet off of uh, off of the Giants' offensive line. Thought that was third down, but I don't, I don't remember for sure. Right, so that gave them a new set of downs. They, Dallas ends up getting a stop again, um, and then on third, on third and short, um, Dallas jumps off sides, giving them another, uh, you know, another set of downs, and and somehow they found a way. No timeouts, just marched right down the field. You mentioned Lance Dunbar had a great game. He was Dallas's leading receiver in this one, but forty of those seventy receiving yards came on two plays when the Giants were in prevent, and he was basically allowed to run across yeah, the middle. Just, just had. I love how space. I love Dallas's clock management in this one. They didn't spike the ball at all, did they? I don't remember I don't any spikes they they, at all. They, they, no. just, they had three plays called. They went up, got three straight completions, and I think there was an incompletion off the hands of Cole Beasley that ended up stopping the clock. They ended up getting one to Terrence Williams on the sideline, and then the wide open Jason Witten. Uh, in the middle of the field, touchdown, and Brandon Merriweather, of course, was able to get a, a nice little cheap shot in on him. Um, <laughs> Such a Merriweather <laughs> thing to there do. There are like I remember there, like there are so many people that were I was on Twitter during the game. Like multiple people were like, "How is this guy still in the league? Like, he, why did teams sign him? He's, he's not, not even starting, good. He's not not only is he in the league, he's starting at strong safety for a pretty decent Giants team. He's also one of those guys that consistently leads with his head when he hits. Always. It's actually kind of amazing that he hasn't like damaged his own spinal cord." Given the way he hits. He's never like hurt himself. He's always hurting other people. There was one game against the Packers where he, he led with his head and knocked himself out of the game with a concussion. And it was like, 
dude, you're lucky you're not paralyzed with right. that technique. That was horrendous. Yeah, and the, the commentators last night were praising him for relearning how to tackle. Like, what is he, like, low 30s? Like, yeah, high re- 20s relearning how to tackle. Like, first-round pick. Shouldn't yeah. you know how to tackle by the time you get to the NFL? Like, shouldn't your high school and middle school coaches even teach good technique to the point where at the college and, and pro level it's not an issue? Like, I you mean, come on. That's just that's yeah. crazy. I mean, you, you like to have those hard-hitting types, but I think they're kind of being phased out. You know, you're – your Sean Taylors, your your Ed Reed type of guys. Cam Chancellor's kind of kind of in that mold, but with the way the rules are and with the the way that targeting is these days, you just don't see as many hard hitters at the safety position. It's almost more valuable to be a better coverage man and play that center field spot rather than relying on somebody to just run up and spear guys like it kind of was back in the the heyday of yeah. Taylor and Reed. It's better to be more like Earl Thomas in right. today's NFL makes you just a more efficient player overall. Two Monday night games we mentioned earlier, Philly going on the road to Atlanta. Eagles favored by three. A little surprised to see that over under 54 and a half. Expecting this game to be a boat race, looking for big numbers from uh, the entire Eagles offense. Running game should be efficient. I think it'll be a close high-scoring game, too, so you're not going to see either team have to abandon the run. That's, that's my hope, anyway. I've got Tevin Coleman going a few places. Got DeMarco Murray going a few places. Even got Ryan Matthews going in one league where I went zero running back, so I'm just hoping he gets like eight for 40 in a TD or something. But these are both pretty good matchups. Vikings, Niners, two teams that kind of go, I think, in opposite directions. But San Francisco at home could still be tough. Vikings favored by two in that one. Over under at 41, much more indicative of the two styles of those two teams. Biggest questions for me with the Niners, Carlos Hyde, how good is he really? And San Francisco's defense, can they still, with all the retirements, all the players they lost, put the pieces together and still be a formidable unit? I think this is a huge game for for pretty much all four teams playing. This is a great, great Monday night slate. I think Sunday night's game is hard to get excited about Dallas and the Giants, who seem to play like four times a year on Sunday night football. Um, but yeah, I mean, Philly and Atlanta, obviously Philadelphia is kind of, I think a lot of people would argue, especially if you're an impartial fan, you know, an appointment watching team just with the way they play, um, all the storylines kind of sur- surrounding Chip Kelly and that offense, DeMarco Murray making his debut, Sam Bradford making his regular season debut. Um, and then an Atlanta team that we're expecting, I think I'm at least expecting a big rebound from after a couple of disappointing years when I think they should have probably taken hold of the NFC South and it's, it's not really gone that way, you know, allowing Carolina to get a couple division titles, but a lot on the line for all these teams. You mentioned Minnesota, a team that's kind of on the up and up San Francisco, a team that a lot of people are expecting to take a major step back. Um, you know, new coach, everything is just, everything is changing, I guess, in San Francisco and it doesn't seem to be changing for the better. So you know, opening up at home against a, a Vikings team that's pretty mysterious at this point, I think, that, and that's the late game, correct? Yeah, that's it's the like late a, game. Like a nine fifteen, nine fifteen Central, ten fifteen on the East wait. Coast. Good, yeah, it's gonna be football till midnight tonight. Good luck with your Tuesday morning for those of you watching this game in its entirety on the East Coast, and then going to work at like seven or eight a.m. Yeah. You're gonna be on like three coffees. Just Are people to get gonna be the like morning. drinking hard for this? If you're if you're a San Francisco or a Minnesota fan, like if the Packers were playing a nine fifteen start game against oh, Seattle, man, for example, a like long people wouldn't time. It's a long pregame. Really yeah, long pregame. I, I pre-game. think people would be able to handle it. Well, it, yeah, I mean, in, in the upper Midwest, yeah, I think the the liver has been it's broken in. Monday night. It's like an old catcher's mitt, really. I think the average uh, <laughs> Midwestern liver. But hey, you know, it's it's just it's what it is around here. I need a big night from Julio Jones and Matt Ryan yes. for the Millie Maker. If, if Julio Jones could break the all-time receiving record, that would be just great for me. I'd really like to get a, a nice cash spot there. I'm in pretty good shape right now, in a cash position right now. But with two games still to go, there's a lot that can work against me. Plenty of Eagles owned, plenty of Falcons owned, like Roddy White scores, for example. That kind of works a little against me, even though I've got Ryan. 
really hoping that AP has a somewhat quiet game, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think AP is going to go crazy in this one. You can see him getting 25 carries for 150 yards and two scores with relative ease. We're talking about a guy who's coming off of pretty much a, a non-existent 2014 season, only played one game before he was suspended, should have extremely fresh legs, looked good throughout camp, of course, as far as just like the photos and reports that we received. It just... I mean, you expect him to be kind of vintage AP at least to begin the season. Maybe he wears down a little bit as things go on, but I don't have him anywhere, so I can. I'm actively just rooting against him. Aside from the fact that I just don't like the guy at this point, I don't have any shares of him either. So anything he does works against all of my fantasy teams. Right. And you're telling me you don't think Matt Asiata is, is going to push him for anything this year? Yeah, I mean, you do have to worry about Asiata vulturing those goal line carries from AP, but uh, two good games on the slate. And I like the doubleheaders on Monday night for what it's worth, too. Yeah, I wish, I wish, they, would, I I wish they would do this more often as opposed to having the super early games in London on a more regular basis. Yeah, and I think the Jags just signed a contract to play in in London through like 2030, so that's not going to be ending anytime soon. They love London. They do. They're trying to become London's team. If, if it can't be your own hometown's team, try <laughs> Not try, even, try not even Jacksonville's team, but they will be London's right, team yeah, someday. Would, yeah, and I, I do kind of like the marketing behind that, but you can't go over there and get killed every year and expect the fans to support you. No, no. If you show up and you're the Washington Generals, I mean, why that's would they like you? That's kind of what they've been, the Jacksonville Generals in a lot of ways. That's what we should refer to them as from now on. Thank you for listening to the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast, brought to you by DraftKings.com, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Use the promo code Rotowire when you make your deposit for a free contest entry today. Also, check out Rotowire for free for the next 10 days by going to rotowire.com slash pod. For Nick Whalen, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast will be back with you on Tuesday. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.